Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm your host, John Slickbaum. Here on the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts who explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you are in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter to you most. This week, it's time for The Rendezvous, which is our monthly installment where the Mitchell team digs into stories you've seen in the headlines. And this time around, we are welcoming back General David Deptula. Sir, welcome back. Yeah. Hey, great to be here, Slick. Awesome to have you back. And next, we have Todd Sledgehammer with us. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. Awesome. And we have Anthony Laser Lazarski. Also great to be back with the team. Yeah, always great having everybody. For those that don't know, Sledge and Laser are Washington experts who have been part of the Rendezvous crew really since the beginning. But we are adding a new voice this week. We've got uh, Mike Dom. He's recently joined our team as a senior fellow, and he is a varsity-level China expert. We've known Mike for years, and it's really a pleasure to have you here at Mitchell. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for the welcome, Slick. Awesome. All right, we're going to dive right into this, guys. Laser and Sledge, we finally have a new speaker of the house. So, Laser, why did this take so long, and what are the dynamics at play? Yeah, it was almost exciting as watching ESPN, uh, those tuned into C-SPAN. But uh, I'm going to state the obvious here, but without a speaker of uh, the House of Representatives, the government doesn't continue to run, at least Congress doesn't run. It's the first position that's named even before the presidency and obviously second in line uh, after the vice president. Uh, Bottom line is the speaker's got to control what goes on the floor, and then all the bills that raise revenue are supposed to originate from the House, which, and this is all that we're fighting about right now. And the big argument was we had a speaker pro tem that was sitting in temporarily, and there was a discussion of what are the authorities, and the agreement was that they were only tasked to organize the election of the new speaker. So how did we get here? There were three reasons. First, Republicans have a slim majority uh, in the House. There are 221 Republicans, 212 Democrats, and there are two vacancies uh, of two individuals that had resigned both in June and September. All right. So to elect a speaker, it normally takes 218 votes, but because of the vacancy, there's 217 votes. So whatever Republican is trying to get up in speaker can only lose four votes in order to be elected speaker. And that's what put us into trying to make sure that we don't lose any votes or they don't lose any votes for the person running for speaker. Second, we also had a change to what we call the rules, the rules of how the House is uh, run. And that is done at the beginning of every Congress. And when we it took four days and 15 votes to elect Speaker McCarthy, one of the deals that was made was changing the House rules that would allow just a single member, single lawmaker to uh, remove the speaker or call for a vacate of the speaker. And those rules stay in effect unless either we change the rules or we have a new Congress. And then finally, when you now when you look at a small majority, then it takes just one person. We have a group uh, on the far right, the House Freedom Caucus. They're very conservative Republicans, and they now have the power to vacate a speaker just by one individual coming up that directly impacts everything that the House does. And they're focused on smaller government, reduced government spending, immigration reforms, and conservative social. So 
We had Representative Gates, he, he files a motion. Uh, we lose Speaker McCarthy on the 3rd of October. Then the Republican conference puts up uh, Majority Leader Scalise on the 11th. He's not gonna get enough votes. Then there's Representative Jordan, he comes up. He doesn't get enough votes. And now we come up with Majority Whip Emmer, who also doesn't get enough votes. And all of this is predicated on the floor. You can get voted in the conference to be the speaker, but you've got to get it on the floor. So finally, on the 25th of October, Representative Mike Johnson from Louisiana 4th District gets elected speaker, and he gets 220 votes to 209. And now we have a speaker. But even though we have a new speaker, it doesn't change the turmoil that we've seen up to this point with McCarthy or the disagreement in the House and within the public party leave me open questions on what legislation to include appropriations can get done this year. Blazer, I tell you, I know this is a free podcast, but I would have paid to listen to that to really understand what's going on. So thanks so much. And I'm sure our listeners are really appreciative of that rundown. I, I want to switch over to Sledge quickly and, and ask what you think of Speaker Johnson's priorities and, and what they're going to be when it comes to defense for those that don't know, he represents Louisiana's 4th District, which is home of Global Strike. So do you think that's going to help support those equity sludge? Well, I, I think you've got to put it in context first. Uh, you know, he is a member of the House Armed Services Committee, so he's very defense-focused to begin with. And regardless of, of what he does now that he's elevated to speaker, uh, the 4th District of Louisiana will remain close to his heart. But once you assume a role of leadership, you've got to take a more strategic view. So I, I think he'll be less hands-on with the parochial specific issues. But if you're Barstale Air Force Base, it's always nice to have the Speaker of the House in your corner. So I think that's the best way to put it. You know, for example, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries every year before he became the Minority Leader uh, voted to pass an amendment that would take significant money from the Defense Department every year. When he became the Minority Leader, he has not voted for that. Another example I think will be in, in the past, you know, Speaker Johnson has not been supportive of further assistance to Ukraine, but now that he's a speaker, I think you're going to see that, that perspective change a little bit, at least subtly. But in terms of your specific question of the impact of defense, I, I think Speaker Johnson, his number one priority is for the Republican Party to govern, uh, and that means passing legislation. He has already put out a very, very aggressive legislative agenda for the rest of this calendar year and an aggressive agenda for fiscal year 25. So that, that's going to be his priority, getting that done. He has established a timeline to get the remaining nine appropriations bills across the House floor before or during, you know, the last three would go the week of the 13th of November. Remains to be seen whether he can stay on that timeline. And somewhere in there also, I would say a couple weeks prior to that, he's going to have to start working a continuing resolution or some type of an agreement to fund the government beyond the 17th of November when the current CR expires. To Laser's point, I think, though, the House Freedom Caucus has said they are going to give Speaker Johnson a little bit of slack. So I think he's got a little bit of maneuver room, but that will only apply while he is actively working the appropriations bills in regular order. So as long as he's doing the business of governing, I think he's going to have a lot of flexibility to do things. Uh, further, he has stated that passing the National Defense Authorization Act by the end of the calendar year, this year is a high priority for him. So I think that bodes well for defense, that we will get a defense appropriations bill, at least through the House, and we can expect to have an NDAA. Um, further, he has already published what he thinks the agenda ought to be for FY25. 
he wants to get all of the regular or all of the appropriations bills and the NDAA for FY25 done before the end of fiscal year 24. So he has threatened to cancel the August recess if that's what it takes to get the legislation done by the 30th of September 2024. What does that really mean, though? I, I think that, that means that there, uh, all government spending, to include defense spending, is going to be under a lot of pressure. But the bottom line is he's defense-focused, he wants to govern, and he set out an aggressive agenda to get things done. Yeah, well, I'm sure we're all hopeful that they are able to govern, like you said. I've got to ask, and you mentioned some of it, I really want to dive into it. Where do we stand with the risk of a shutdown or another continuing resolution? Laser, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, first of all, and Sledge set it up, we're going to need an, another continuing resolution because Congress is not going to be able to pass all 12 of its FY24 appropriations bills by the 17th of November, the date that the current continuing resolution ends so and sledge went into the house hasn't passed although theirs although they have a plan to try to get it done by november the senate's working theirs they're trying to get it done by november but we're not going to get every not only we're we not going to get it done on the house and the senate but then they have to conference it which means they have to come to an agreement between the house and the senate on what the final bills are going to look like so we need another continuing resolution to take us from 17 November to some other date. And I, Speaker Johnson, and the same thing as Sledge is saying, he uh, has put out his letter and continuing to fund the government after 17 November is his immediate focus. Now, the good news is, like last time, the leadership in the House and the Senate don't want to shut down. Speaker Johnson wrote in a letter that he's open to another continuing resolution to fund the government, and he said through 15 January, and then there was talk about maybe 15 April. But the question is, under what conditions? And, and Sledge said some of this, you know, under what funding level? What additional funding or policy changes? And then how long does that CR go? And Democrats don't want to pass a continuing resolution, but they want it similar to the current version. It's similar spending levels and policy riders. And some Republicans in the House want additional funding cuts. Some want future continuing resolutions to include some conservative policy measures, which would not be acceptable in the Senate. And then other House Republicans said they won't vote for any continuing resolution. They want to get the bills done and uh, not keep pushing it down the road. So. In order to get this done, there's going to have to be a compromise in the three areas I talked about, funding levels, policy changes, duration. And as Sledge said it also, the Freedom Caucus may give Speaker Johnson some early leeway in negotiations, but I'm really not sure uh, how much. And he still faces the same single member vacate rule as Speaker McCarthy. So nobody really has a good idea where we're going to be. I would give it the next two weeks and we'll have a better idea of where we are on a shutdown if we can't get a continuing resolution. But I would say that a shutdown is definitely a possibility. Got it. All right. Uh, Sludge, I want to ask you this. Can you explain to us the impact of a sequester if the CR continues into 2024? Yeah, I, I, I can. And what I'd like to do is maybe put a little context on that first, though. You know, Laser threw out two dates there, you know, both of them in, in 2024. I, I think the date that you probably need to keep the closest eye on is the 15th of January. Uh, for a couple reasons. First, that is the date the House wants because it kicks it out past the uh, the Christmas jam and, you know, forcing the House to take a bad deal to get out of here before the holiday break. I'm not so sure the Senate wants to go into January. 
But the problem with the later date that Laser mentioned in April is if, if the House really wants to do all of their legislation in regular order, a continuing resolution through mid-April means that the FY25 budget request from the administration comes over in June. And I was told there'd be no math, but that doesn't give you a whole lot of time from the time the budget goes over to Capitol Hill to have everything done by the end of September. So what I think you'll see happening is a continuing resolution. They'll probably get it sometime through mid-January to give everyone time to do the appropriations bills. I think the big thing to note, though, is if the continuing resolution goes beyond the 30th of April, so the 1st of May is when the 1% automatic cuts go into effect from the the debt ceiling agreement that was reached by uh, Congress earlier this year. So anything they're going to try to do will be to avoid the sequester cuts that would be triggered by anything beyond not having all the appropriations bills done by the 1st of May. And as we've done on past podcasts, if there is a CR in effect, it really it, it means that the funding levels are restricted to the previous fiscal year and enacted for each of the accounts. And then probably the biggest is the no new start, no production increases for any of the programs in the DOD. And obviously, a 1% cut to a budget that doesn't even keep up with inflation would be absolutely devastating to national security. Yeah, well, you just said it best there, Sludge. Thanks so much. Uh, General Deptula, uh, would you mind talking to us about what is at stake given these budget variables? Yeah, it's clear that defense continues to struggle for attention amid the political turmoil that continues to dominate in uh, Washington and the rest of the country. But here are the stark realities. The threat environment is beyond acute. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, China pressing hard in the Pacific, Hamas attacking Israel, plus then the terrorist sponsoring of Iran and North Korea's disconnectedness from civilization. The Air Force and the Space Force are particularly challenged when it comes to meeting combatant command demands around the world. The Air Force was cut dramatically after the Cold War, and too many of our modernization programs were cut. Systems like the F-22, the B-2, and the C-17. Now, with respect to budget perspectives, the Air Force has been funded less than the Army and the Navy for 31 years in a row now. And for the 20 years post 9-11, the Army's received $66 billion a year on average more than the Air Force. So this combined neglect and the underfunding of the Air Force has resulted in the oldest, smallest, and least ready Air Force in its 76-year history. It's in a nosedive relative to capacity, and a continuing resolution will delay when it begins to pull out. Now, the Space Force, candidly, was founded largely as an unfunded mandate, helping them grow to meet their pragmatic demand of all of the services requires additive investment. So we're talking about building an entirely new architecture here, given the threat environment. So uh, those are some of the wave tops from the defense perspective. Yes, I really appreciate that. Are there any uh, other specifics that you can give us? Yeah, here's how I'd break it down to help folks understand what's at risk. Modernization for core programs where we either buy new equipment or risk sunsetting missions because current systems are so old and fragile. 
that's why the B-21, the F-35, and the KC-46 are so important. The aircraft they're replacing are not going to hang together from a structural perspective much longer, let alone be relevant in the modern threat environment. In space, things are similar. Here's an example for you. Think about the Defense Meteorological Satellite Program. It's the backbone of the military's weather monitoring system, and it's on the verge of failure because it's so old, and we haven't launched the replacement system yet. That system's known as the Electoral Optical Infrared Weather System, or EWS for short. You can't do anything without knowing what's going to happen with the weather. Do we really want to risk that? It also ties to innovating what's next after we put out our near-term fires. Uh, for example, advanced jet engine propulsion is one of America's asymmetric military advantages, but we can't take that for granted. Maintaining a lead over determined competitors demands smart investment, robust competition, and a continual push to innovate ahead of the threat. So we need to double down on these investments, but that's at risk without regular dependable funding. You, you, you heard Sledge explain that very clearly. In space, think about CJADC2. The entire enterprise needs to be connected by a robust, reliable network. The Space Force is inventing that network with its new transport layer, and all of that stands at risk unless we keep those programs on track with sufficient resources. You know, trying to build a house when your budget keeps getting cut, your requirements keep growing, and you can't get timely access to your bank account, it just simply doesn't work. So it also comes down to people. In the Air Force, we have a shortfall in so many mission areas with pilots and maintainers at the top of that list. If we have these shortfalls during peacetime, Think of what it's going to look like in a war when we have competent adversaries and attrition of our forces will be a real factor. With respect to the Space Force, it needs significant personnel growth. The number of new missions that we're asking them to undertake, not to mention to stand up all of the overhead functions of a new service, that can only be done with enough people. And frankly, they're too small and we need to fix that. Other categories include readiness, training, and the infrastructure investments, and all of that's at risk the longer we stay in a continuing resolution and don't have a regular budget. Yes, yeah, sir. It's always just sobering when you when you lay it out like that. And I want to stick with you for this next question because last month when we recorded the rendezvous, Hamas attacked Israel the next day, and you've been on the news a lot recently talking about this, so can you bring us up to speed with your thoughts? Well, yeah, Slick, there's so much to discuss in this regard. Let me kind of again hit the wave tops. We've been hearing a lot about the anticipated major ground operations by Israel into Gaza. I think it's important for the audience to understand and realize that Israel's military operations are being integrated across all warfighting domains, air, sea, land, space, cyber, and information. It's a multi-domain effort. And while ground operations may become more prominent, air and sea operations are going to continue. In fact, a primary role of ground operations will be to gather intelligence about Hamas's tunnels, rockets, 
command and control, and other key nodes, then to be destroyed from the air. So in this sense, ground operations are supporting an air campaign, but frankly, it's all an integrated campaign. Now, with respect to the challenges of urban air warfare, the biggest challenge will be eliminating Hamas who are intentionally intermingling themselves with civilians in direct violation of international humanitarian law. These laws obligate Hamas to avoid locating military objectives within densely populated areas and to protect the civilian population under their control. But the exact opposite is happening and Hamas is in gross violation of these laws. I'll give you just one example. Their major command center is located under the largest hospital in Gaza. And it's also important to rem remember and remind people that Hamas intentionally aims to kill civilians, to include Palestinians. That's part of their strategy. Israel, on the other hand, does not attack civilians. Unfortunately, war is a horrible thing, and civilians do get killed unintentionally, but the fact is there's no moral or any other kind of equivalency between Hamas and the Israeli Defense Forces, because using the presence of a civilian uh, or civilians to render areas or combatant forces immune from attack is a war crime. Now, with respect to U.S. operations in the area, we clearly have interest in the region given all the issues at play. And that demands smart, concerted action, as well as a willingness to employ our forces should circumstances warrant. That's why I think it's important that we clearly articulate our stance so Hezbollah and Iran clearly understand what's at risk for them if they attack Israel from the north. Uh, we've got to focus on clearly stating consequences for any transgressions. And all of that is required because deterrence is only credible if we follow through. Um, the recent U.S. attacks on a couple of munition storage facilities of Iran's proxies uh, were not sufficient to deter additional future attacks. Uh, the bottom line here, from a macro-level perspective, is the world's on fire and the United States is underprepared. And that, I would suggest, demands a national conversation and it's time that national security become a talking point on the presidential campaign trail. Yeah, sir, could not agree more. I mean, just as a parent, the conversations have shifted picking your kids up from school. So hopefully this is the wake-up call that America is finally, finally getting to put the, the focus back on national defense as a common theme as we start this next election cycle. And with that, Sledge and Laser, I want to ask, how is this playing out on the Hill? Because there's obviously a lot of pressure to pass legislation to help support Israel. Yeah, let me jump on that one there, Slick, real quick. So, yeah, just to remind the listeners, the administration sent a national security supplemental over to Congress a couple weeks ago, $106 billion. It really included three things, support for Ukraine, support for Israel, and a, I guess, a border security provision, if you want to be kind and polite and, and call it border security. But just as far as Israel goes, there's a lot of support for Israel on both sides of the dome. And I think Congress will end up splitting those three components of the supplemental apart and try to pass or at least consider each of those 
separately, and and I, and I say that for for a couple reasons. First of all, Senator Cotton said that the $106 billion supplemental is dead on arrival in the Senate the way it's written. But there is a lot of support for Israel. In fact, the first thing that Speaker Johnson did after he got the gavel was to pass a resolution in support of Israel, and that uh, was approved by the House on a vote of 412 to 10. So there's a lot of support for Israel. What I think you're going to see happen this week is about a $14.6 billion request for specific aid to Israel. Uh, That will go to the House floor. That will pass. There will probably be something similar in the Senate. They will break the components of that uh, supplemental request apart and vote on them individually. And in the case of the House, if it does go to the floor, whether it's for Israel or Ukraine or or anything else. I think if it goes to the, the floor, there will be enough bipartisan support for it to pass and at least kick it over for this, uh, the Senate to consider. I'll just add on everything that Sledge said is right on. Even uh, before the House had passed their resolution, the Senate uh, two weeks ago passed a resolution called Standing with Israel Against Terrorism 97-0. So there, there is broad support. However, and I know we'll get in Ukraine next, but Ukraine is a priority and it's in that original request that came over from the president. I think the House will split out Israel and send it over to the Senate. I'm just not sure that the Senate's going to send it back without a change. If they don't, I think it'll pass quickly. If not, it may take a little longer to get the Israeli peace done. Got it. Well, you, you teed me up for my next big question is how does this funding tie to the support, you know, that we need to get to Ukraine. And does batching these efforts help net this progress? Yeah. Uh, those that want to try to get the Ukraine passed will like to pair it, uh, to tie it uh, to Israel. But I think Sledge said it best is that uh, they're going to decouple, specifically in the House, because there's more support, uh, more bipartisan support, bicameral support for the Israeli funding. However, it is a priority, and there is wide support both in the House and the Senate and Republicans and Democrats to continue to support Ukraine. Matter of fact, even if you look at the latest polling, there's still a majority of Americans that support believe that the United States must continue to support economically and militarily provide assistance to Ukraine. The problem is the process and the timeline to get that funding done through Congress is going to be uh, problematic and take additional time. Uh, The other problem is, and General Deptula said this, and we've seen him on the news, this is an enduring conflict, uh, and it's going to need long-term support and long-term funding. And the uncertainty of the length of support needed, the cost to the United States, the perceived lack of oversight uh, is what is causing some members of Congress, as well as some Americans, to waver. And Sledge talked about House Speaker Johnson, uh, you know, and he's been opposed to funding for Ukraine in the past. He's the one that said there isn't uh, sufficient oversight, and he feels that the money could be better spent here at home. However, you'll have seen other members of Congress, to include Representative McCormick from Georgia, continue to make the case for supporting Ukraine, saying that, hey, NATO made a commitment to support Ukraine. U.S. is part of NATO. U.S. made a commitment to support Ukraine directly, and we need to show it's going to hold true to its commitments, unlike it did in Afghanistan. And then it's better to fight Russia and Ukraine with a capable and willing partner than in some whatever the next country Russia invades. So uh, that continues to track, continues to get support. But 
again, we're, I, I don't know. I, I mean, we're going to have to see, I, I, I think Sledge is right. They're going to see, you're going to see the Israeli piece first, and we're going to have to go see what happens in the Senate. But if they do put them together, it is going to slow things down in both the House and the Senate, even though I believe that both have the votes to pass. Yeah, if I could just tag on there one thing, you know, there's an old saying that uh, where you stand depends on where you sit. And I, I think Speaker Johnson, now that he is the speaker, has slightly different perspective. He's voted against support for Ukraine in the past, but I, I think now that he is in a leadership position as the speaker, that will moderate a little bit. But, I, you know, again, if, if the bill goes to the Senate floor, whether it's for Israel or Ukraine, I think there will be enough bipartisan support to, to pass the bill. Got it. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I want to bring in Mike to talk about, the to me, the elephant in the room here, Mike, and that that's China. So how is China reacting to this conflict between Israel and Hamas? And are they picking a side? Are they, you know, posturing themselves opportunistically? Yeah, thanks, Slick. You know, historically, Israel and China have always enjoyed a, a pretty good, pretty good working relationship, especially when it comes to Israel sharing military technology with, with China. Up until about 15 or 20 years ago, there was a lot of Israeli military technology that was making its way into the into the People's Liberation Army. U.S. put a stop to it, objected pretty strongly to uh, some of the radar deals that Israel was making with China. But, but in this case, in the current crisis, you know, China's coming down pretty hard on the side of Hamas and the Palestinians, and probably more importantly, uh, on the side of the Arab world. Uh, you know, China's calling for an end to the Israeli offensive, standing with Russia. Uh, pretty much undercutting anything the U.S. might introduce in places like the U.N. Security Council in support of Israel. So China's trying to portray itself as a leader of the global south. and This is a strategy where China figures it can lead the developing world, and that will act as a counterbalance to the U.S. and its allies. So, so Beijing appears to be standing with the Arab world and their opposition to what's happening to the Palestinians. But they're very unlikely to take any action like, you know, deploying Chinese forces or providing weapons to the belligerents. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate that insight there because it's just something that we haven't really uh, had the opportunity to talk about much. One thing we have hit on earlier, but I really want to dig into deeper with, with this panel here, is, is talking about the challenges facing the defense and industrial base. You know, we were having challenges sustaining the flow of supplies to Ukraine. But now we've got Israel adding to the demand signal, and it's just us supporting our friends in regional fights. So think about how tight things are going to be if this was fighting a major uh, theater war. So General Deptula, can you kick us off on this thought and, and what's going on here? Uh, yeah, sure, Slick. This is a huge challenge, and we need to work it now. First and foremost, everyone needs to listen to our recent podcast on the industrial base from two weeks ago. It's tremendously educational. It's important to recognize that we can't flip a switch and expect the industrial base to surge. We held them to low build rates for three decades. And so that means the labor pool, tooling, and production sites are a heck of a lot smaller than they used to be. We also saw a lot of workers, many of whom were older, decide not to return to the workforce after the COVID epidemic. It's not just about final assembly sites either. We need to pay attention to the suppliers, the companies that build the components that assemble them into airplanes. These folks are often small businesses and their talent is largely composed of artisans. It takes years to grow new ones. 
Now the commercial airlines are surging. So we're competing with them too, with military and commercial aerospace generally using the same suppliers. We also need to pay attention to raw material availability. We all know about the rare earth mineral issue with China and Russia strategically hoarding access to those elements. That means we need to think long lead about securing these materials. And that's why multi-year contracts are so important. It's also why things like continuing resolutions are so harmful. So bottom line, we need to grow the aerospace production sector, but that's a long lead effort. It demands stability. And again, that's not what we're seeing coming out of Washington these days, but that's one of the reasons we exist to highlight these issues and perhaps folks in Congress will pick up on that. All right, Laser, we see other defense groups like the shipbuilders advocate for their industrial base requirements in a vocal and effective fashion with Congress. We don't seem to see that as much with aerospace. Any thoughts on what we can do to improve that dialogue? Yeah, I mean, again, Sledge and I were up on the Hill for a while. And while we do have aerospace advocates on the Hill, as well as coming to the Hill to meet with members and staff, I agree that the group as a whole can do a better job. Each industry or company comes to the Hill to advocate for their program or programs, but only groups like NDIA, the National Defense Industrial Association or AIA Aerospace uh, Industry Association, Air and Space Force Association, us advocated a strategic level uh, focused on the entire aerospace industrial base and its impact on national security. Uh, You know, I think aerospace advocates on the Hill with specific members and staff, as well as the caucuses to include Air Force Caucus, Space Force Caucus, Aerospace Caucus, Airborne and ISR Caucus, the Supply Chain Caucus, Depot Caucus, all these caucus, Long Range Strike Caucus, all these caucuses play, but we, what we have to do from the outside is give them the information and participate to make sure that these caucus stay vibrant. A lot of times these caucuses, they're, they're members that are interested in these issues, they stay up to speed, but they're only as good as what the information they get and the advocacies, not just from the large groups, but the, from their constituents coming into each of these offices. So we on the outside need to do a better job prioritizing our issues, succinctly providing information to the Hill about each of those issues so that we can enable the members and the staff to advocate and engage collectively as one voice on the Hill. That is a way that we can make sure that things happen. I, I mean, I've seen the Shipbuilders Caucus, they're strong. The Depot Caucus, it's strong. I think we can do a better job. And Senator Inhofe, who I worked for, and Senator Chambliss, who Sledge worked for, were on several of these caucuses and they were all advocates However, members and staff do need outside support and information to effectively advocate for our issues. Now, Sledge, what's the fix here from a Hill perspective? You know, people are talking about the industrial base, but how do we move past the talking points and work on real solutions? And to this point, note how people often don't connect the dots between a CR and the industrial base impact, and we we can't have it both ways. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, this could be a whole podcast by itself here, Slick, but there's there's just a couple things I'd like to say in terms, you know, respective to Congress. Relationships matter, and you really need to build champions on Capitol Hill. 
whether that be members, whether that be committee leadership, whether that be, you know, professional staff, you need to have people when it's time to make a decision and vote that say, you know what, the aerospace defense industrial base is important. We're going to make sure it's properly funded. Now, that relationship starts with a sufficient request from the Department of Defense um, and getting that effectively communicated, the, the objectives of their uh, budget requests, the importance of the investment, and, and driving home the point to members of Congress that this needs to be funded. Short of that, the, the members that are going to vote, and, and I think the, you know, the, the point that, that Laser made about the shipbuilding uh, industrial base is important. It, it's really easy intellectually to grasp a carrier task force. That, that's something that you can, you, know, you can get your, your arms around, as is two or three submarines funded per year. It's something very simple. Most of the, the naval infrastructure and uh, the shipbuilding is done in largely populated areas that have strong advocacy. They have champions from, from Congress. So the question becomes, how do air and space forces build the same kind of advocacy when your infrastructure is either in space, it's not hard to, it's very difficult to see, and a lot of it's classified, so it's hard to get your arms and your, your uh, brain wrapped around that. Or if you're at a geographically isolated Air Force base, it's really tough to, to build that kind of advocacy. So that I think that's something we need to work on. The second part of that is the Navy in particular does a really good job cultivating relationships with the personal and professional staff on Capitol Hill. I don't know the number of naval intelligence officers in the U.S. Navy Reserve that are also staffers on Capitol Hill. And those same people have an opportunity to do some type of developmental education with the Naval War College. Now, I know that the Air Force does, they've got seminars for Air Command and Staff College and Air War College, but it, it pales in comparison to what the Navy's doing. And all of that relationship building is how you get votes to invest more in either sub-builds or additional shipbuilding each year in both the authorization and the appropriations bills. Yeah, that is such a great point just from the relationship perspective. And yeah, the Air Force, really aerospace, you know, just seems like they can learn a lot from the way the Navy does business there. Mike, I really want to get a China update from you. You know, the Department of Defense just released their China report. What are your top insights, especially when it comes to air and space developments? Yes, like so. So this thing that we call the China Military Power Report, it's a report to Congress. It's required actually by the National Defense Authorization Act from back in the year 2000. So for 20 years, the Department of Defense every year issues this report on military developments in China. Now, I'm a little bit critical of the China Military Power Report. The problem is, is that every year it isn't an entirely new report. The 2023 report is essentially identical to the 2022 report, and it has relatively few changes in edits. So guys like me get to wade through all 212 pages of the report Playing one of those, you know, those picture games you used to get on the back of a kid's menu in a restaurant. You try to spot the difference between the two pictures. That's what I've been doing. So, you know, given the media rollout for the report, what the Department of Defense wants you to take away from the China Military Power Report are things like China increasing its military coercion activities over the past couple of years. This report, even though it just came out this month in, in 2023, uh, it's supposed to cover actually calendar year 2022. So it's about 10 months behind. It does have some updates from earlier in 2023, but you'll, you'll recall that 2022 was that year when 
Speaker Pelosi visited Taiwan, and China conducted these unprecedented military exercises and missile firings around Taiwan. The Pentagon has also documented over 180 instances of uh, coercive and risky intercepts of U.S. aircraft in the region, plus about another 100 intercepts and coercive activity directed at our, our allies and partners. So that's what the DOD wants you to take away. But beyond those significant developments, you know, there are things that appear in this year's report, things like China's increasing nuclear capabilities. Actually, that was something else that the Department of Defense wanted to highlight. So commercial satellite imagery has documented the development of three new silo fields in central China, housing as many as 300 intercontinental ballistic missiles. That all happened, or those all were completed in, in calendar year 2022. So there are estimates that China's moving from a second strike nuclear posture with just over 200 warheads a few years ago. Today, China's thought to have over 500 nuclear warheads, and DOD estimates that China's going to be... Uh, tracking toward over a thousand nuclear warheads by the year 2030. So with the construction of these new silos, China's moving from that assured second strike capability to a launch on warning posture. That's pretty significant. Regarding the specific air and space developments you asked about, there isn't a whole lot that's new in the 2023 China Military Power Report. In 2022, China conducted over 60 successful space launches, putting about 180 satellites into orbit. That's about a 300% increase from about five years ago. China's on pace to break that record for uh, calendar year 2023. One of the 2022 space launches was for a reusable space plane. So China has its own space plane now. And that was on orbit from August of last year until May of this year, according to the report. Also, and I thought this was interesting, buried in the text of uh, this year's report was news that the PLA Air Force is now a majority fourth-generation fighter force, with over 1,300 of 1,900 fighters being fourth-gen or 4.5-generation fighters. At this point, China may also have as many as 200 fifth-gen J-20 fighters. So we got that going for us. Yeah, you know, I want to pile onto that because, that, you know, the numbers game is something we really haven't jumped into too deep. Do you have a, a broad-brush uh, look of what the number of fighters that they have beyond just— to, you know, beyond just, beyond the 200 potential fifth gens that you spoke of? Well, so we've talked a lot about the F-35 production line and what the Air Force is going to buy to keep that production line going and, and, and operational. I've seen projections now based on some changes at the factory where China produces their J-20 that they may be producing as many as 100 J-20 fighters, those fifth generation fighters, every year. So, it's not just the 1,900 fighters that I just talked about. It's the 1,900 fighters, some of which, quite frankly, are third-generation fighters, the old J7s and J8s. Those are actually being replaced by fourth-generation or 4.5-generation fighters, and then also with the uh, fifth-generation fighters. So it's not just the numbers game in terms of 1,900 fighters. Is it going to become 2,000 fighters? Is it going to become 2,400 fighters? That's probably going to happen. But there's also this qualitative change where they're taking these older aircraft. We're even getting reports of earlier fourth-generation fighters, things like the J-11 and the J-10A and B, that are being replaced by 4.5-generation fighters like the J-16 and the J-10C. 
Yeah, just it, it is eye-watering when you when you get a chance to look at those numbers. So yeah, something for us to watch out for. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is their defense minister just got removed from his position. And, you know, what does that signal? Well, I think it signals some pretty significant cracks in the PLA's facade. You know, this week, as we're having this podcast, Beijing is hosting the Shangshang Forum in Beijing. Shangshang is China's opportunity to get a bunch of security people together and bash the U.S. for being behind the chaos in the world, chaos that, quite frankly, their friends, the Russians, and themselves are actually causing. But it's also an opportunity for Beijing to project, rather, a sense of normalcy. But things are far from normal. The Shangshang Forum would normally be hosted by uh, Defense Minister uh, Li Shangfu. The only problem is he was removed from his job last week. Li Shangfu is the, is the defense minister, and we shouldn't think of that as being like the U.S. Secretary of Defense. He's more like the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy in that way. He only took over the job in March. He's been missing for the last two months with no explanation from the Chinese government, presumed to be under investigation for corruption, and that's entirely possible. He used to be a, uh, the head of the Equipment Development Department for the People's Liberation Army, so he was in charge of of procurement and buying everything, and there may have been some uh, there may have been some some issues there in terms of corruption. And in 2018, the U.S. sanctioned Defense Minister Li over uh, Chinese purchases of Russian military equipment. So we're not entirely sure what happened. The Chinese government hasn't been forthcoming with information, but the dismissal of General of General Li comes on the heels of their foreign minister getting dismissed in in July. There were some pretty salacious rumors going around about what happened with their foreign minister. And then a couple of months ago, you may remember hearing that General Li Yuchao, who was head of the PLA rocket force and in charge of the China's nuclear deterrent, he was dismissed from his post along with his deputy and several other rocket force senior officers. So, you know, the fact of the matter is we don't know what's going on in the upper echelons of the Chinese government and military at that level. Chinese leadership sort of a black box, but this is the biggest shakeup in Chinese security leadership we've seen in a decade, and that was when Xi Jinping came to power. So, you know, right here on this podcast, we've talked about our own U.S. you know leadership challenges in government, but given what's happening in China, it would be like the U.S. getting rid of its Secretary of State, the Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, and firing the Commander and Deputy Commander of Stratcom all just over the past few months. Well, it's incredible. And Mike, you know, while we have you here, first time on the show, any other developments we should be tracking or top news items? Yeah, I think I'd keep an eye on developments in the South China Sea. You had asked before if China was was posturing or, or taking advantage of the situation in Israel with Hamas. I think while the world is distracted by Ukraine and Israel, they've been making some moves in the South China Sea. There have been several incidents where Chinese Coast Guard ships have bumped and collided with commercial boats from the Philippines. Nobody's died yet, but that may well be on the horizon. You know, this is basically China saying that, you know, these are their sovereign waters and they're trying to muscle the Filipinos out of what they claim is their waters. So just a few days ago, President Biden warned China that the U.S. will defend the Philippines if they're attacked in the South China Sea, reiterating that the U.S. has an ironclad commitment to the uh, defense of the Philippines. And of course, uh, what was in the news a few days ago was uh, this intercept, this uh, unsafe intercept of a U.S. Air Force B-52 and a J-11 fighter. B-52 is flying over the South China Sea at night. 
And the J-11 closed to within about 10 feet of the bomber, according to the video and the report that came out of Indo-PACOM. All right, thanks everybody so much for your time today. It's all we have time for, but General Deptula, Sledge, Laser, and Mike, it's been awesome catching up and really appreciate your insights. Yeah, thanks for the, the great uh, uh, segment, uh, Slick. You did a great job. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Slick. Thanks, Slick. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas you think we should explore further. As always, you can join in on the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Stay safe and check six.